following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. today the last segment of John 11 that we intend to deal with in this chapter. It's the fifth time I visited this chapter and the careful development that it gives to the incident of the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus from the dead. Even though it's, it's told very carefully and very dramatically, the actual resurrection that we saw last time occurs in very simply. As Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And we dealt with that on the last occasion. But now we look at the aftermath that John reports. And by the way, before I read, there might be those who would say, well, how would John, of all people, a disciple of Jesus, ever know what was said exactly inside the council of the ruling Jewish leaders? And if you think about it, uh, it isn't quite so mysterious. It's probably, most likely, the fact that someone like Nicodemus, who became a disciple of Jesus and was in that council, later was able to give eyewitness testimony of what we read here today. We don't have that reported for sure, but that explanation certainly makes sense. Listen as I read John 11, beginning at verse 45, and follow in the Word of God. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know so they might arrest him. 
This is the Word of God. I'm sure you're probably aware of recent news reports here in Pennsylvania that come out of the corridors of our state government, even on the front page today as I uh, saw it, the sordid discovery that hundreds of pornographic emails have been transmitted among various state office computers. Who is responsible? What was the motive? We don't exactly have answers, and yet we know that some in high office are already disgraced by this. One Supreme Court justice is accusing another of slandering him, and so on. Now, the public should not be entirely surprised. Our office holders have feet of clay. We know that. And yet it's always a shameful thing to see that people we would have hoped anyway had some degree of uprightness in the public trust can act with so little dignity or responsibility. Well, there's another government expose of a kind in our text before us today, a look behind closed doors of leadership to show us people acting in high position with very low motives and really criminal intent in their scheming. What we see are the highest counsel of the Jewish officials in Jerusalem of that time, literally now, making an open thing of it. We've seen in John as we've studied it, they have sort of spontaneously sometimes taken up stones and said, well, we're going to stone him, and Jesus got out of their grasp, but now it's, it's a firm determination. He has to die, thus introducing the second half of the gospel that moves to the cross. Lazarus arising from his tomb was absolutely an act of divine power. What else do you call a four days dead man? walking out of a grave. And who, besides God, does such a thing? It's a miracle. And you would have thought that people would have seen that and been so uh, humbled by it, so awed by it, that they would have said, friend or foe alike, why, this has to be the Messiah of God. Who else does a thing like this? And the whole issue would have been decided in Jesus' favor. But instead, we see a fulfillment of another text of Scripture in Luke 16, where it says, even if someone goes to them from the dead, they will not repent. And that's what we see here today. In John 11, we have to marvel at a well-engineered act of treacherous treachery by forces of determined unbelief. One of the things I thought of was the secret plotting that eventually was all brought out into the open by uh, former President Nixon's forces of conspirators back 40 years ago. And the whole nation was awed by the depth and the extent of plotting that people in high places were doing with no real reason to do it. And we were amazed at what was going on. Well, we do see, though, despite this treachery, the sovereignty of God in the passage before us as the hatching of a conspiracy to murder Jesus is nevertheless under God's control. And a person who can speak the high priest Caiaphas, although 
he speaks out of an angry, vicious mind. His words end up functioning as a message from God, a message with actual positive meaning that the man himself could not have fully comprehended. So our interest is really revolves around the words of Caiaphas in John 11:50 today when he said this amazing statement, better that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should have to perish. I just have two main points to take from this and then a few applications today. First of all, this point that unbelief contains no place for objective truth. Unbelief is actually intolerant of objective truth. Now we know, and John has helped show it to us uh, along with other parts of Scripture, that Jesus universally tends to cause a division among people. It was true when he was alive. It's been true ever since. You can even think of the symbol in his death of a thief on either side of him, one who, for no reason we can discern, looks to him and speaks to him and, and calls him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the other one who dies with bitter mockery and curses as he thinks of Jesus as nothing but another criminal like himself. A division among men, even there in his death. And that is repeated here today as we see what happens beginning in verse 45 of our text, John eleven forty-five. Some people believed in Jesus. Now the commentators have an interesting discussion. Does that mean full, wholehearted commitment of faith to him in a saving way? Well, in light of the fact that he hasn't yet died and, and been risen, we think probably that's not what this indicates. But it at the very least indicates an opening up of their minds, a turning in a friendly way towards him, a, a desire to investigate and know more. And quite possibly that did lead to true saving faith for many of these people in, in a little time to come. But there are others that it says immediately, what did they do? They thought right away, well, what I've seen here is something the authorities certainly want to know about. And they ran off to report as informers, you might think, of what was going on to the Jerusalem officials. Way back in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, we had the prediction that unbelief would act in a certain way throughout history as the Lord spoke there in Isaiah 6 and spoke of unbelievers and said their hearts will be dull, their ears will be heavy, their eyes will be blinded, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and their hearts would understand and be healed. In other words, unbelief has this way of kind of charging forward with this narrow, you know, scope of vision, if it is vision at all, and a refusal to accept obvious truths that stare people right in the face, but they will not deal with. So we hear of this hastily called meeting of the Sanhedrin. It probably wasn't a regularly scheduled meeting, a a called meeting. And you know, I was musing something. Uh, It's a very firm Presbyterian tradition that any meeting we have of a committee, of our session, of our deacons, any group that meets in the church to do business, we always pray. And I thought to myself, I wonder if they prayed at the beginning of this meeting. If they did, it must have been a a hypocritical and self-serving prayer. 
But here we have the two great parties that we know about, the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees, the more religious people who who had a mind to uphold the law of God. The Sadducees, who were quite secular aristocrats, their minds were more on worldly things, and they really had the edge in, in ruling. This was like locking in a room, you know, representatives of the Republican Tea Party and the Liberal Democrats. And believe me, they had as little in common as all that. They couldn't even agree on a time to meet, probably, most of the time, but they agreed on opposition to Jesus. That united them. And, and here's what they're saying. They're all abuzz as this meeting begins. What are we going to do about this man? If he goes on, everybody's going to be following him. They won't listen to us. We'll lose control of our nation. We'll lose our our offices. We'll lose our prophets. And they were profiting, some of them, from the various concessions in the temple and so on. Everything we've built up could go downhill if this man is allowed to continue. How much that sounds like that first great messianic psalm, Psalm 2, that we used as a call to worship this morning. A wonderful prediction by God. Here's what the governments of earth will do, God said in Psalm 2. They will conspire against me and against my son, and the rulers of earth will take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's God's anointed? Jesus Christ. All this was predicted, and now we have an exhibit of Judaism in the first century, which was something greatly declined. It was in drastic spiritual eclipse from the religion of the Old Testament, from the law of Moses, from the office of the priesthood and the days of the sacrifice and the holy days and all of the things that have been given to Israel that once they followed. Believe me, what we had by the time of Jesus in the religion of Israel was barely a shadow, a poor shadow of what had existed centuries before in the time of the patriarchs. Here is a captive people. Rome was in charge. Rome ruled in Jerusalem. They allowed the Jews to have their leadership and their temple and their rituals as long as they obeyed the law and did what Rome wanted them to do. And so you end up with a leadership that that knows its limits and knows that its primary reason for existence is to just maintain the status quo. Now, notice verse 47 of our text. It's very important as they say, what are we going to do for this man performs many signs? Sign means miracle in John. He performs many miracles. There was no disputing in this group. Anti-Jesus group did not dispute the fact of the raising of Lazarus. They did not come and say this was some kind of a trick. You know, like the magician on TV who disappears on stage and then he's in the balcony and we go, how in the world did he do that? Nobody said that. Nobody said this was a fake. They said he does many signs. What are we going to do about them? How are we going to deal with the fallout from this? How can we spin this to work to our advantage? And then comes one voice that shouts for and gavels probably if they had gavels in that day. I can see him pounding the podium. Come to order. 
the voice of Joseph Caiaphas, the current high priest in Jerusalem. Now, it says he was high priest that year. That doesn't mean a one-year election. It simply means at the present time he was high priest. We know, in fact, he served from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. And we also know that by his side the whole time, and you'll hear about him a little later in the gospel, was Annas, his father-in-law, the former high priest. You didn't stop being called high priest, much as if you know, we would have uh, George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush today. And how were they addressed? Mr. President. Annas, the former high priest, was still consulted and, and helped his son-in-law and was in the picture. But he's not mentioned in this particular passage. Here was an office that had been designed in the law of God to be an heir of the line of Aaron, the first of all priests, someone who would be a godly individual, who would honor the law, who would know how to lead Israel in their, in their great rituals and the Day of Atonement and the sacrifices and all these things. What do you want for this? A godly person, right? You don't want a worldly person. But here we have today in Caiaphas, a man who is almost entirely chosen for his political skills. He had a worldly orientation. He was thinking of power and how to maintain it. And that's what he brought to the agenda here this particular day. He was apparently pretty insulting and arrogant. He didn't care how rude he was. As he said, look, we'll just reduce it to our slang. He was saying, you people are stupid. I don't understand what you're all jabbering about. Don't you see the bottom line of this whole case? This man has to be killed. Isn't it more sensible to kill one man than to see our whole nation and our privileged positions be swept away? Are we going to allow that or are we going to eliminate one individual? That's pretty ruthless. But that was the way the high priest in Israel addressed the situation. You would think he'd be a man who would speak to people about the fear of God, but here was a man whose primary fear was of the Romans. And he was ready to sacrifice everything on the altar of political expediency. Ladies and gentlemen, this man is a parable or an allegory for leadership in any age of history that has no principles. Leadership that has no base of vision, that has no real world view that is founded on information outside what's going on in the present moment. A world view, after all, is supposed to be a set of principles and values that, that guide you and shape you so that you have a compass as you move through things. And you especially want national leaders to have a world view that they can draw from. Where did Caiaphas' worldview come from? Whatever was tugging at him and whatever was to his advantage in a particular moment of history. No vision, no principle. No wonder self-preservation is the primary goal of such leadership, whether it is in the age of Christ or in A.D. 21st century. Now, they're obvious facts of what God had done. They were acknowledged by these people. What did they matter? Who cares? If Jesus had done 10,000 miracles of equal standing to the raising of Lazarus and you stacked them all up 
in the balance scales and said, look, you people, you've got to admit these facts, they would say, no, we don't. No, we don't. We don't have to admit anything. Those facts count only insofar as the way we control things for our advantage and for our security in the present moment. And in the year 2014, as much as in the year one, we need to understand deep-seated human unbelief has no native ability to seriously consider or bow before the claims of objective truth. You're tilting at windmills when you say, but, but, look at the facts. Your opponent is not interested in reacting to the facts. Now, secondly, I would ask you to consider as we move on here from verses 50 to 52 of John 11, this point, the ironic and amazing prophecy that is born out of spiritual ignorance. Maybe if you're a really sharp Bible student, you remember something from an obscure book. The book of Numbers isn't read too often, although it's part of the first portion of the Bible in Israel's history. But there's a curious individual in Numbers, and in chapter 22, Balaam is described, a man who had the gifts of prophecy. He wasn't out of Israel himself. He was a non-Israelite who was a prophet. And a man named Balak came along and wanted to defeat. He was threatened by the Israelites, and he, he tried to hire Balaam and promised him a lot of money, a lot of prestige. He said, look, all I want you to do is pronounce a prophecy to condemn or curse Israel because I'm afraid of them. I don't like them. Well, Balaam didn't think he should do that, but he looked into the situation. And to make a long story short, while he was looking into it, he was riding along one day and his, his donkey swerved off the path and caused Balaam's leg to bounce off a rock or a tree or something, and it hurt him. And Balaam was upset, and he started whipping his donkey. Do you know what happened? The donkey talked back. The donkey spoke in a human voice and said in so many words, why are you trying to disobey the word of your God and curse the people whom God will not curse? God could make a donkey speak his message. That's a biblical fact. Well, look what we have here today. Caiaphas, the worldly-minded high priest, he wasn't a donkey, but he spoke in a way that absolutely dripped with irony as he arrogantly asserted this fundamental thing. This one man, Jesus, needs to die, and that would be preferable to a whole nation being swept out of its place of prestige and protection by the Romans. What he said was born 100% of political angry motives, and yet he prophesied something that was much greater than what he could comprehend in the moment. Verse 51 says he did not say this of his own accord. Well, I don't think that's telling us, this is my interpretation, that God used him the way a ventriloquist uses a a wooden puppet. You're really a senior citizen if you can remember Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Any remembrance of them? I know we have a few senior citizens, a few who aren't even senior citizens. You young people don't remember Charlie McCarthy, the most famous wooden puppet whose master made him talk. Well, we're not saying that God was a ventriloquist who literally manipulated Caiaphas like he was a puppet. 
His words were his words. They came out of his mind and his spirit. Nevertheless, the text is saying they were God's words. They served God's purpose without this man ever understanding how he was actually defining the historic purpose of the cross in his one sentence, one man must die for the people. That condenses a correct understanding of the cross so beautifully. John Calvin commented on this. If you think I quote him too often, it's because his comments are so good. Calvin said this, and he had no mild opinion of it, as you'll hear. He said, Caiaphas vomited out his wicked and cruel design of putting Christ to death. There's a gentle verb for you. He vomited his wicked design, which he conceived in his own mind, but God turned his rash tongue to serve as the organ of the Holy Spirit as he uttered a blessed prediction. What did Caiaphas do except speak about the doctrine we call the substitutionary atonement? He'd never heard of that doctrine. He probably went to his grave never hearing of that doctrine, but that's the doctrine he spoke. One man to die for the people. It's a blessed doctrine. It's perhaps the very core of what we understand about the cross of Christ, that he was dying as a substitute, the Lamb of God in place of the people of God. First Timothy 2 says there's one God and one mediator, go between, that is, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for us. I have emphasized from this pulpit many times that little word, F-O-R. He died for us in our place. You see, the Bible has this estimate that there's a dread seriousness about human sin. It's not to be taken lightly. People just simply don't believe that today. I heard a testimony in my office of one of our new member candidates, and he told of being raised in a home with many privileges and many advantages, and uh, he thought he was a pretty smart young man, and and he was. But he told uh, in, in young adulthood of going to a revival-type meeting and hear a man talk about sin in the biblical way. And he said he was thunderstruck. He never had anybody suggest that he was a sinner. And he didn't know what that really meant, but as he heard it, he sensed that it was fundamentally true, and it shook his whole world and changed him. Well, people just don't quite believe that, that sin is such a big deal. They think, oh, no, yeah, sure, I'm a sinner. Of course, I admit that. But, you know, God's a merciful God, and he'll smooth it all out. He'll take care of me. I'm not as bad as most people. That's the usual view of sin. But the biblical view of sin is it's an offense to a holy God, and it needs to be atoned for. Someone needs to pay the price of the wrath of God against sin. And, you know, you can look on God and say, oh, he's some kind of a monster. He wants to blast everybody for sin. But wait a minute. Don't you have to see him quite differently when the Bible says, on the cross, the vast debt of sin was paid, and God paid it in the life of his own son? You have to treat that message we call the gospel with a new respect when you begin to understand that. And not only does this prophecy contain then that doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, one man dies for the people, but it even goes on to say, especially in verse 52, 
that this death of Christ isn't just a substitution. It is effective for a specific group of people. What's Jesus said to do here as John gives us the message? He gathers into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This too is what the cross does. The people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, Israel and non-Israel are scattered over the earth. And they're scattered in every age of history. And the cross of Jesus will act like a great magnet acts with iron filings. If you were to pass it over those filings, you would gather up everything that can be attracted by that magnet. As the members of the universal church of all believers are gathered in, attracted to the cross. Ephesians 1.10 says, God has a plan for the fullness of time to gather all things together in Christ. So do you see that from the human side, the death of Jesus could be called the most heinous crime ever concocted? It was a brutal murder, nothing less. But from the divine side, that same death was God's design of love, putting his son in the place of guilty, sinful human beings. And all that means that the greatest crime committed in the world also became the greatest blessing for the world. Who has been preaching to us today? Well, God ultimately, his word, of course. But who? Who's the person preaching? Why, it's Israel's highest official who is a corrupt, blasphemous, self-serving scoundrel telling us that the way to be saved is by the death of one on behalf of many. Is it any wonder that Psalm 76 says the wrath of men will praise God? The prophecy of a man who never thought of himself as a prophet, praise God. Paul said in Philippians 1, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others do it out of selfish ambition. What does it matter, Paul said? The important thing is that whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Thank you, Mr. Caiaphas, for preaching Christ. Now, what are some practical benefits of this very quickly? One might be that you would have a, a different view or, and compassion towards your unbelieving friends and relatives. Yes, it's a good thing that you want to give them a sermon CD or a book or an article and say, look, read this. this you know, and you're thinking, if they would just read this, if they would just hear this, they would turn to Christ. Well, I don't discourage you from doing that. But you do need to understand that it's not, much of the time, it's not just information that people need. What they really need is the opening of their spiritual eyes by the Holy Spirit. And if you're giving them and feeding them information, pray too. God, would you by your spirit open blind eyes that can manage to stare at solid resurrection and, and cross facts that I see and believe and they see nothing. Open their eyes and their minds because they have no natural capacity, no place for truth in their mind unless God gives it. And if that seems discouraging to you, I'd say practically also be encouraged at the same time and know that God can preach the cross of Christ from the most unusual and unexpected quarters just as he did here. 
You know, we're very discouraged about the world we live in and the politicians who lead us and the fact that there is not a Christian worldview in the White House or in other higher stations of power, the Supreme Court and many other places. And we can get so badly discouraged and say, oh, how can I go on living in a country that just gives away everything I value? But listen, God's people have existed through history under people like Joseph Caiaphas. And God has preached through people like Joseph Caiaphas. And God has brought about results in history through ungodly presidents and ungodly senators and congresspeople and judges throughout the land doing things that they don't even know that they're doing under the providence of God. Jesus Christ still divides people in history, folks. And there are several approaches to take. One is the approach of indifference. There certainly were people. Could you imagine that there were people who walked around through Palestine, heard Jesus preach many times, watched miracles, and they walked away indifferent? You know, don't you think, don't we imagine, why, if I ever heard Jesus in person, I would have fallen down on my face and said, my Lord and my God. No, you wouldn't. At least at that moment in history, you would have been just like many people who are in, oh, man, one of those... Galilean cranks, you know, interesting, entertaining, but what's for lunch? That's about how much Jesus mattered to some people. You can be indifferent to him today. But he says in John 8, 24, indifference won't last because unless you believe that I am the Christ, you will die in your sins and with the consequences of those sins upon you. Well, the other alternative is you might openly oppose Jesus like Caiaphas did, and many others have. There's a new atheism movement out there today, people who are very smart in their own way, and they, they don't seem to be afraid at all anymore to stand up in public and openly mock things of God and say all kinds of things that aren't true and aren't provable, but they can vociferously say them anyway. You know, the amazing thing about Caiaphas, he he said the things that he feared. What did he say he feared? Our nation could be swept away. We'll lose our office. Guess what happened? Forty years. Seventy A.D. We know it happened. In fact, John was writing after 70 A.D., so John knew that this had already happened. The Romans came, and they took Jerusalem apart they took enormous blocks of stones that took many horses and, or oxen or something to move, pulled them apart, pulled them so there was no remnant of the temple left, only a foundation portion of the basement wall. Can you see today? And you, many of you have seen that. But that's all you're going to see of the Jerusalem temple and all of its liturgy and all of its rituals and its high priesthood, which disappeared in 70 A.D., never to exist again. Exactly what Caiaphas feared, the all-sovereign God brought upon an unbelieving people. Go back to Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord holds them in derision who oppose him. Lastly, this. There's another alternative between indifference and opposition You can, when facing the powerful Son of God who cannot be ignored, take the best of three options and bow before Him and call Him Lord and surrender your life to Him. 
You see, it's really hard to imagine Caiaphas surrendering his life, right? Caiaphas was the guy who always could pull the string. No matter what situation he was in, he would maneuver it. He would engineer it. He would get out of it. He was in control. What does it mean to bow to Christ? It means to come to him and say, you're in control from here on. I give it up. And in handing your life over to Christ, guess what happens? You actually get your life back. And you get it back clothed with immortality. That's how our God works. Father, today we've thought about a man who has his prototype operating in our society at many levels. Maybe someone like him sitting here who has thought they could control everything their way to make preservation of their plans, their imaginations come true. We know that coming to Jesus means giving something up. It means saying, you are the king. You, Lord, as Psalm 2 says, have set your king on your holy hill and we will bow to him. Help us to do that and to enter the joy of eternal life in him. Amen.